Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it seems that this uh, summer, 2019, is the summer of Disney movie remakes. Uh, In March, the studios had a live-action version of the 1941 classic Dumbo. It was met with mixed reviews. Personally, I loved it. I thought it was great. And the CGI of Dumbo was incredible. Uh, In May, Aladdin hit the theaters with Will Smith taking over Robin Williams' iconic role as the genie. He did a fabulous job, and the the movie was excellent. In fact, I highly recommend it. If it's still around at the $3 theaters, you should go see it before it leaves. But perhaps the film that most Disney fans are looking forward to comes out in just a few weeks on July 19th, and that's the Lion King remake. When the original film debuted in 1994, it was a box office and critical success. Did you know that despite being the 32nd full-length film that Disney put together, it was the very first one of an original story? All the other Disney films before that had been based off of a previous work. Uh, last week I was at downtown uh, Disney, Disneyland and California Adventure. I take a monthly pilgrimage to the happiest place on earth uh, just to make sure it's still happy. It was. Um, and they were giving away special buttons for annual pass holders for the release of Lion King, uh, the live action this summer, uh, as well as a place where you could get your picture. And, you know, for research purposes, sermon preparation, I felt it was my duty to go and You know, the things that I do for you folks because I love you that much. (laughs) Welcome to the fifth week in our summer series called Faith in Disney. And each week we look at a different full-length Disney film uh, and we try to find what are some elements of faith that are in that story. And then we hold it up alongside a passage from the Bible that also has similar themes of faith and see how they fit, see what we might learn from stories that we may think we know but maybe see them in a new light and hopefully allow us to draw closer in our walk with Jesus. Uh, Our annual Vacation Bible School uh, concludes today. Thank you to all the volunteers. Uh, We had over 65 kids that came during the week, and probably about that many volunteers with youth and adults. It was fabulous, so much fun. Um, You really, if you didn't have a part in this, you should really be proud of what our church is doing uh, to bless our children. And many of the kids who uh, uh, are from our community that aren't part of the church Uh, came as well, either invited by church members or they just know that we do this well and they've been coming, you know, year after year. In fact, there's some kids that started coming when they were little and now they're volunteering as adults uh, and they're from the community, or not adults, as youth, uh, and they're from our community and it's it's quite a blessing to see that. But the theme was roar, uh, as you can see by the African safari behind us, or Savannah, and what, what other film could I do except The Lion King on the Sunday after VBS? I found an interesting stat or, or statistic, or, or not statistic, uh, fact this week when I was looking at IMDb, the Internet Movie Database. It said that when, uh, around 1992, 93, 94, right before Lion King came out, Disney was actually working on two movies at the same time, Pocahontas and The Lion King. They put their A-team, their best animators, on Pocahontas, and then the, the JV got stuck with The Lion King. Um, and Pocahontas was great. I loved it. But... The B team really did a fabulous job in making the iconic classic that we have as the Lion King. 
the uh, Lion King opens with an unforgettable song sung over the African savanna. The song is called The Circle of Life, and what follows is scene after scene of brilliant animation, and the camera just pans across the African countryside with just breathtaking shots of the beauty of the African continent uh, and the diversity of the creatures who inhabit it, no matter how big or how small they may be. And as the song continues, the animals seem to be migrating to a, a central location, it's an area known as the Pride Lands, and they've come to see the Lion King, Mufasa. Here, the baboon priest, Rafiki, gives his friend a hug, who's all smiles. Why? Because his firstborn son has arrived in the world, and today they're revealing him to the kingdom. So Rafiki anoints his head, uh, presents him to the larger community, and it's almost a baptismal-like moment. Uh, the heavens open, and the entire kingdom seems well-pleased with this infant. One by one, they kneel before the future king, and then the opening title falls dramatically at the end of the song. Well, it turns out that Mufasa wasn't very pleased that his brother Scar uh, failed to show up at the celebration. And we discover this underlying hostility that Scar seems to have uh, against Mufasa. And Mufasa, being the king, doesn't take kindly to being disrespected. Well, meanwhile, Rafiki, the baboon priest, is in his cave painting. And there's something very special about this young lion cub named Simba. As Simba grows, his father begins to teach him about who he is and what his future will be. Our Bible reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. It's a story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Gospel of John is a bit different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John seems to give us an extended visit between Jesus and a particular character. Every other chapter or so, it's a different character. And, and then in that extended visit, John delves into deep theological truths and understanding that the early church held as important. So we pick up our story, John chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. So just for some geography, uh, Judea was in the south, Galilee was in the north. Here's a map uh, with those parts circled in blue, um, and that green arrow is pointing to where Sychar is located. Sychar is in the region uh, of the area called Samaria. It was a place that most Jews avoided. In fact, this was the pathway that most Jews would travel if they had to go from the south up to the north, a path that added five to seven additional days on their journey instead of going straight through Samaria. 
You see, Samaritans and Jews in Jesus' day both traced their origin back to the 12 tribes of Israel that came into the promised land. But over time, Jews felt like the Samaritans became tainted, that they had intermarried with other faiths and religions, and they had lost the essence of what it meant to be truly Jewish. And so most self-respecting Jews went out of their way to avoid Samaria, both literally and figuratively. Yet John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Interesting set of words, isn't it? I mean, it could mean that Jesus was just pressed for time and he couldn't spare the extra five to seven days that it would take to go around. But a closer look at the Greek uh, sentence there and the verb that's used for had to go uh, suggests that he's doing this according to divine necessity. That, That it was really God's will for him to go through this place. And so that's what he did. That God had a purpose for him. We're about to meet that purpose. Verse 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. There's these wonderful side notes that are always in parentheses uh, throughout John's gospel, just to make sure that we're up on what's happening in the story. Now, it wasn't uncommon for women to come to the well. In fact, the local well was often the gathering spot for women. It's where they found companionship, conversation, laughter, gossip. In in a world that was too frequently dominated by men, the well was where women could, well, just be themselves and hang out with other women. So it wasn't uh, surprising for Jesus to meet a woman uh, at the well. Uh, Not at all. Uh, What was uncommon, though, was when Jesus met this woman. John said it was about noon. And about noon in the Middle East is even more hot and oppressive than about noon in the Antelope Valley in the summer, right? We tend to avoid going out about noon, right? Because that's when it's the hottest of the day. Same there. Unless, of course, you're trying to avoid people who may be there at other times of the day. Author Ken Geyer, in his wonderful devotional book, Moments with the Savior, says this, she too is weary, Not so much from the water jar she carries on her head as from the emptiness she carries in her heart. For a span of five husbands, she has come to this well, always at noon, always alone. You might say that the empty water jar that she brings with her to the well is a telling symbol of her life at that moment. Empty. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, At this point in the story, all we know is that she is a Samaritan woman who has come to the well at a very unusual time in the heat of the day. And Jesus has asked her for a drink. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Again, parenthetically, Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. Now, I'm pretty sure at one point or another, just about every woman who's ever lived has had a man ask her to get me a drink of something at one time or another. But that's not what I think annoys this woman. She knows that um, Samaritans and Jews aren't on the friendliest of terms. Why is this Jewish man asking me for a drink? And if he's a religious leader like he appears to be, uh, religious leaders were forbidden in public places to talk with any woman who was not their wife. So there's a couple of red flags that this woman has uh, right away. A religious leader and a Jew is asking her for a drink. So hold that thought. We're going to go back to our film. After getting the everything the light touches will be your kingdom speech from dad, uh, Simba makes sure to go and tell his uncle Scar about his future and what dad has told him, which, as you can imagine, Scar is not very happy to hear about. 
And we see him begin to manipulate his young nephew into doing things and going places he shouldn't, including that shade, shade, uh, shadowy dark area, which turns out to be an elephant's graveyard. Well, it takes some doing, but Simba and his best friend Nala ditch Zazu, their uh, appointed babysitter, and make it to the off-limits elephant graveyard, which naturally is quite eerie. But then when three hyenas appear, the eeriness gets taken to a whole nother level. Things are looking pretty grim until Dad shows up unexpectedly and saves the day, and we realize that Scar has been watching unseen this whole time. Mufasa has that, uh, I'm very disappointed in you, son, talk that all of us at one time or another have had with our own parents. And Simba says, I was just trying to be brave like you, Dad, to which Mufasa says, being brave doesn't mean you go looking for trouble. In the end, father and son make up, and Simba says, we're always going to be together, right, Dad? And Mufasa has his son look up at the sky. He says, the great kings of the past look down on us from the stars. So whenever you feel alone, those kings will always be there to guide you. And so will I. Well, Scar scolds the hyenas for not killing the cubs when they had a chance. And he longs for the day when he might be king of the whole area. After Scar leaves, uh, he puts in plan uh, a way to kill both uh, father and son. And he starts by taking Simba down into the gorge and, and telling him to wait because his dad has a secret that he wants to come and give him. Meanwhile, the hyenas start a stampede of wildebeest right down into that very same gorge where Simba is. And then Mufasa is told by Scar uh, that his son is down there in the gorge without any protection. And so, of course, Dad has to run down to try to save him. It's, a, it's amazing that Simba uh, manages to dodge the wildebeest, and just in time, Dad swoops in and saves the day. He manages to uh, put Simba off on, on a rock in safety, but then he himself gets swept away by the herd, and he climbs up the rocks only to be met by his brother Scar, who is not very sympathetic. In fact, uh, Simba can't see this, but his uncle pushes his father off a cliff, and he's trampled by the wildebeest. Well, after a daring chase, little Simba manages to escape through a briar patch, and Scar returns to tell the pride about the death of both father and son, and announces that he will be the new king, and ushers in an era where Lion and Hyena live together. Now, it may seem like these are two completely 
unrelated stories, but hang in there. This is where they're going to start to come together. So Jesus has come to a well in Samaria at noon. A woman is there. He asks her for a drink of water. She is shocked that he would break such cultural conventions and actually speak to her. And then we pick up in John 4, verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, scholars tell us that this exchange between Jesus and the woman at the well is the longest conversation in the Gospel of John between Jesus and anyone else. There are 42 verses that delve into this connection between these two. And Jesus, as it moves on, we begin to see that he starts wanting to go deeper and talk about deeper spiritual truths here. And and if you knew who it was that was talking to you, Jesus says, you would ask for something even better than just water. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where, Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and with his sons and flocks drank from it? And as the conversation continues, we see that that the woman's talking on this level and Jesus is talking on this level. She's come over for water. She's thinking about a literal uh, uh, water and well. And Jesus is saying, no, there's something even better than what you have here. Something more satisfying than just what you can get when you fill up your, your jar with the water from here. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. You're thinking about just literal water. I'm talking about living water, Jesus says. Water that, once you have it, satisfies that deepest desire, that deepest thirst within us. And that leads to eternal life. I mean, we all thirst for things in this world, don't we? The catch is that sometimes we don't realize that what God has to offer us is ultimately what we need most, even more than the things that we think we need. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never have to keep coming here to draw water. Again, she's still on the level thinking about literal water, and and who wouldn't want to have to check a a thing off of your list that you have to do every single day and never have to do that? If if I could get the water, maybe have a sink in my house. That would be amazing, you know, something like that. Uh, But Jesus decides now to take a different tack, and he says, you know what, go bring your husband, and the three of us can talk about it together, at which she confesses that she has no husband, and then we get to verse 17. You are right, Jesus says, in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. I love how Ken Geyer reflects on Jesus' insight into this woman's past. He writes this. She's at a dead end right now, living with a man in a relationship that leads nowhere. Again and again, she has come to the matrimonial well, hoping to draw from it something to quench her thirst for love and happiness. But again and again and again, she has left that well disappointed. The Samaritan woman is discovering that Jesus knows her better than she even knows herself. And maybe this is why ultimately she was there at the well at noon in the heat of the day, because other people knew about her as well. And she just got sick and tired of them talking about her behind her back or in front of her face. You see, that's what shame will do. 
In fact, let's talk about shame for a moment. Renowned author Brene Brown comments that shame is an epidemic right now in the United States. What is shame, actually? Many authors have a similar definition, but I'm going to go with Edward T. Welch's definition from his book, Shame Interrupted. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. Edward Wimberly, in his book, Moving from Shame to Self-Worth, writes this. The culture of shame is characterized by a pervasive sense of worthlessness, being unlovable, and feeling that there is a fundamental flaw in one's being. Many authors have commented that shame is not the same as guilt. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Guilt is a focus on one's behavior. Shame focuses on the entire self. Pastor Pete Wilson, in his book, Let Hope In, reminds us that shame is not produced by events that we experience, but in fact, shame is what we believe about those events that we experience. So he writes, shame stamps us with memories that feed us for the rest of our lives. Images of shameful events, moments, and decisions, they're hard to shake. But what is most crippling is not the memory of the actual events themselves, but the lie that the memory implies telling us how worthless we are. We're soon to find out that exactly where Simba is right now in the story. With the crippling death of his father and the shame that his uncle Scar has planted within him, it's as if he feels he can't even go on. In fact, we find Simba alone in the desert, He's pretty much given up. The buzzards are circling overhead, waiting for him to stop moving so they can go in for the kill. But a traveling duo of a meerkat named Timon and his sidekick warthog Pumbaa stumble upon Simba and take him to safety. Now, they know that the young cub is depressed, so they offer a little bit of advice. Uh, Hakuna Matata, they say, which uh, roughly translated in Swahili means no worries. Don't let anything bother you in life, they say. And as the song, Hakuna Matata, uh, progresses, we see Simba growing from a young cub into a full-grown adult lion. And over time, the three of them become inseparable. Meanwhile, back at Pride Rock, Scar's new rule has the place falling into shambles. The three hyenas confirm that there's no food or water left. The lionesses refuse to go out and hunt. But all is not lost because the baboon priest Rafiki gets this sense that despite what Scar has said over the years, Simba is still alive. Well, sometime later, Timon and Pumbaa are walking in the jungle when they're suddenly attacked by a lioness. Uh, Fortunately, Simba's close at hand and, and jumps into the fight. But in the middle of the fight, he discovers it's his best friend Nala from when he was younger. She's shocked that Simba's still alive. She tells him about how horrible things are with Scar as the king, followed by a very romantic interlude, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, sung uh, by Elton John. It's fabulous. Uh, Despite her insistence that they need him, Simba refuses to go back to the Pride Lands. Uh, The shame and the guilt has been buried so deep within him, he just cannot imagine facing his family and friends again. That's when Rafiki shows up and surprises Simba by saying, not only do I know you, I know your father. And not only do I know your father, but he's still alive. And Simba says, no, he's not. He says, yes, he is. 
I'll show them to you. Follow me. And they start this bounding through the jungle. It's amazing. Let's watch this pivotal scene. Simba realizes that going back means he's going to have to confront his past, something he's been trying to avoid for many years. But he decides to do it anyway. And Rafiki scampers off to tell Nala, Timon, and Pimba, Pimba, Pumba, (laughs) the good news. Now, once again, listen to the words of Pastor Pete Wilson when it comes to shame. What happened in our past, if not dealt with properly, is more than likely crippling us from becoming who we were created to become. And your past is not your past if it's still impacting your present. If we don't learn to transform the pain, we'll just transfer it. So the goal is to find a new way of working with the past so it does not continue to impact our future. How do we begin to transform the pain of our past? Author Brene Brown has what she calls shames one, two, threes, or uh, the first three things we have to know in order to deal with shame. First, that we all have it. Shame is universal. It's one of the most primitive emotions that all of us experience. In fact, she says, the only people who don't experience shame are those who are incapable of empathy or human connection. So basically, sociopaths are the only ones that don't have shame. Lewis Mead says that almost everyone feels shame at one time or another. It's like an invisible load that weighs our spirits down and crushes our joy. He calls it a lingering sorrow. Second, We're all afraid to talk about shame. But third, the less we talk about it, the more control that shame has over our lives. We have to find ways of bringing it out to the ones we trust the most. Here are some of the examples, uh, responses that Brene Brown got when she asked people to give them uh, what are some examples of shame in their lives. Shame is getting laid off and having to tell my pregnant wife I won't be getting a paycheck. Shame is having someone ask me, when do you do when I'm not pregnant? Shame is hiding the fact that I'm in recovery. Shame is when I rage at my kids. Shame is bankruptcy. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of a client. Shame is not making partner at work. Shame is my husband leaving me for my next door neighbor. Shame is my wife asking for a divorce and telling me she wants children, just not with me. Shame is my DUI. Shame is our infertility. Shame is telling my fiancé that my dad lives in France when, in fact, he's in prison. Shame is internet pornography. Shame is flunking out of school twice. Shame is 
hearing my parents fight through the walls and wondering if I'm the only one who feels this afraid. Edward Welsh sums it up by saying, what do you want to hide? That is a shortcut to identifying shame in your life. In a 2011 study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute on Drug Abuse, researchers found that as far as the brain is concerned, physical pain, when we physically are injured, and intense experiences of social rejection feel the same. That physically our bodies, our brains hurt when, we're, uh, when we allow shame to come into our lives. It has that much of an impact on us. The bottom line for men and women when it comes to shame can be boiled down to this. For women, the primary trigger in terms of shame is how we look. She says, shame, uh, more shame is felt about not being thin, young, and beautiful enough than any other source. And for men, she says, it comes down to this, not being perceived as weak. What's ironic is that the research tells us we tend to judge people and be critical uh, in areas that we ourselves are vulnerable to shame. And, and, and especially when we find someone who's doing worse than we are, we tend to heap it on them. Well, Simba is shocked to find out just how bad it really is back in the Pride Lands. And Nala, Timon, and Pumbaa eventually catch up to him. And Simba says, you know, this is my kingdom. If I'm not going to stand and fight for it, who will? Well, Scar continues to uh, abuse and berate Simba's mother. And that happens when Simba returns. And everyone thinks it's now Mufasa who's come back from the dead because he looks, Simba looks so much like his father. When Simba demands that Scar step down as king, his uncle refuses, and he turns to his army of hyenas to protect him. That's when Scar tries to use the weapon of shame one more time against Simba. Okay, let's not forget our other story, Jesus and the woman at the well. So after recognizing this woman's source of shame, their deep theological uh, discussion continues. And, and she acknowledges that the Jews worship Jerusalem, but, but the Samaritans worship at Mount Gerizim. And so she asks Jesus, which group is right? Which, which site is more holy? And Jesus responds by telling her, you know, it's not really important where one worships, but ultimately the condition of one's heart. And then this exchange takes place. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. So this deeply thirsty woman, she knows. She knows that the Messiah is coming. And he'll tell us, he'll explain everything that's true. 
she says. And that's when Jesus says, that's me. I am. I'm the one you're looking for. And again, this is the longest dialogue that Jesus has with anyone, not only in the Gospel of John, but in the entire Bible. It's that significant. Jesus sees this woman for who she truly is, a beloved child and daughter of God. He doesn't let her shame get in the way of their connecting. He doesn't ask her to change her lifestyle first. He doesn't say, go and sin no more. He simply welcomes her as she is. He enters into her life. He offers her the living water of his presence. And you know what's most amazing? We skip to the end of this chapter, and we find this verse beginning at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that city believed Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I'd ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. You know what this story says to me, friends? It says that all of us are thirsty. And too often we're willing to be satisfied uh, with less than the very best. But that God wants to give us living water, his presence, things that will change our lives. And and by simply acknowledging her, by engaging her as a a woman of a full and complete person, Jesus helps this woman move past her own shame. And her testimony draws an entire village to Jesus. So... Let's quickly wrap up Lion King. When we last left our hero, an epic battle had begun. And of course, when there's a fight, Timon and Pumbaa have to step in. And uh, Rafiki. You've got to watch out for a pastor and his staff. Deadly combination. Well, Simba corners Uncle Scar, who tries to talk him out of killing him. He says, "Uh, it was never my uh, intention. The, the, The hyenas, they're the ones that forced me to do this. And so Simba offers his uncle a way out similar to what he had said to him earlier. Leave now. Go and never come back, and I won't kill you. But Scar uses that as an opportunity to attack Simba, and the two engage in battle once more. Well, the hyenas had overheard the entire conversation, even the part when uh, Scar tried to throw him under the bus, so they decide they'll be the ones to finish off Scar, and the double-crosser is finally double-crossed. As rains fall to extinguish the flames, the animals reunite in safety, Simba takes his rightful place on the throne, and the falling waters wash everything clean. My brothers and sisters in Christ, it is my deepest desire that shame will no longer have a hold on any of us. That we are more than our deepest secrets. We are more than our worst moments. We are more than the things we have done. And through the stories of the Lion King and Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well, we're reminded to remember who we are. That we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. That the presence of the resurrected Christ lives within each of us. Let us hold on to that truth now and forevermore. Amen.